Countless new technologies have developed under federal funding, much of it under the auspices of federal laboratories. To showcase some of these developments and the technology transfer process, the Federal Laboratory Consortium has updated its online presence known as Lab Tech in Your Life. We get more now from the Deputy Director of the Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Derek Parks. Mr. Parks, good to have you with us. Good morning. How are you doing? All right. And you also work a lot on the Federal Laboratory Consortium. Just give us an update. What is the FLC for people that may not know? And there's quite a number of members, aren't there? Yes. So the Federal Laboratory Consortium, also known as the FLC, it's a nationwide network of over 300 federal labs and research centers uh, that represent are represented from 23 federal agencies. And the group works together to move innovative technologies that are developed throughout the federal lab networks uh, from the lab space to the marketplace. All right. And the online presence then is what, for the public to see what's going on, for the consortium itself to keep track? I mean, what do you, how do you make sure you everyone knows what's going on. Yeah, so the the consortium itself uh, was developed with three different mission principles. So we want to promote federal tech transfer. Uh, we want to educate the tech transfer community within the federal agencies and also facilitate uh, the transfer of technologies from the lab to the marketplace. So in this respect, what we've done is created something new uh, on the FLC website, which is called Lab Tech in Your Life. And it's uh, a really unique way to kind of educate the public on what different technologies are in and around them that they really may not know about. These are kind of hidden technologies uh, that you see every day, but you have no sense uh, that they were there or developed by federal laboratories in the first place. So it's pretty cool. And before we get into some of those, just briefly describe the technology transfer process itself, because it's a highly developed activity. It's got its own acronyms and its own set of communities of practice, really, that are devoted to technology transfer. Definitely. Uh, Technology transfer, I will say, is even kind of a hidden component of uh, federal life within the federal community itself, let alone in the public. So back in 1986, the Federal Technology Transfer Act was passed uh, in Congress, and that also gave the provisions for the creation of this group, uh, the Federal Laboratory Consortium. But what the, the Federal Technology Transfer Act really said was we want to, as as the United States of America, make the most use of all of these research and development dollars that are going into uh, R&D every year and make sure that that uh, at this point it's over 150 billion that's being invested in R&D. We want to make sure that those technologies are used, first of all, for the mission purpose, that's clear. But secondly, if there are dual use purposes uh, in the commercial sphere or some technologies that just don't make it into mission applications, that's a a nature of research and development. Not everything makes it directly into its uh, intended application. Congress was saying we want to maximize those research and development dollars and make sure that the federal labs have the ability to actually transfer those technologies out of federal laboratories and into the commercial sphere where they can be exploited by U.S. companies to actually make money. And one of the key ways that we do that is through the patent process. So our colleagues over at the USPTO, um, we work with them very closely to get patents on the most promising technologies that we have. And that allows us to put those technologies out on the marketplace and say, here, we have something for you, uh, industry that has been 
invested in considerably in the basic research front. It's been proven. We have something that is really ready for you to adopt and turn into a commercial product. On top of that, we've de-risked this investment by putting a patent on it. So we know that we can license this to you and you have the security to say to your investors, look, we own this for a period of 20 years. This technology will be first to market. We'll be able to uh, exploit this fully and there's no worries. So it really is a, a very nice process that isn't usually associated with the federal government. It's more of a private sector uh, a process, but we have the capability of doing that as well within the federal government. All right. We're speaking with Derek Parks. He's Deputy Director of Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. He's also chairman of the Promote Committee of the Federal Lab Consortium, the FLC. And this showcase is entitled House and Airport which is kind of an odd conglomeration featuring 86 technologies from nine agencies. What's in there? Well, so, yeah, you say it's odd, and it is at this point. It's kind of like this weird amalgamation why we're doing home and airport. But what we're trying to do is actually build a full virtual city. So what the the visitor to the website can do is actually enter into a home at this point and go from room to room and look around click on a little icon uh, for certain things and see what the federal technology is that's underlying whatever it is that they're looking at. So for example, in the home, you might click on a a milk carton, for example, and learn that that's lactose-free milk. And the the lactose-free capability was actually developed by the Agricultural Research Service. You're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Likewise, you can look at uh, something like food labels on the back of uh, of all of your food containers and say, well, where did those come from? The National Institutes of Standards and Technology actually developed that that schema and uh, promulgated that throughout industry. So that's another uh, another great success story. And then you look at things that are even a little bit deeper that you may not have understood were federal technologies like your your cell phone camera, your cell phone itself, or you know, the the fancy camera that you have sitting next to your desk. Those technologies contain something called a CMOS sensor, which is prevalent throughout the the, uh, photography industry. So it's uh, a technology that was developed by NASA in the first place and really pretty cool. But who knew this? (laughs) You know, everybody probably thought, oh, that was Nikon or Canon that developed that. But nope, that was NASA. And likewise with the cell phone, you know, we walk around with these things every day, but there's federal technology that developed the cell phone in the first place that was developed by the Department of Defense, the Army, and transferred to a company that was eventually bought out by BlackBerry. Uh, Everybody knows about the Blackberries, but they probably don't know the company that uh, originally undertook the technology. So very cool. Um, So the goal is really that we want to have a complete city. And so you've got your house right now, you've got an airport, uh, but we're going to continue to build components of this so that you can take virtual tours of of a whole city. And of course, when you're stuck waiting for a plane that may never leave, it seems like you live at the airport. So that's your house for the time being. And the airports, airports are full of technology, some that you see and encounter and some you don't see and don't encounter directly fair to say. Yes. And actually, one of those is uh, from my own agency, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There are these things called wind profilers that are set around airports uh, all around the country, and they detect wind shear, which is kind of an important thing if you want to stay in the air. So um, it's really uh, something that's very dangerous as you come in for 
uh, for landing with an airplane. So it's good for the pilots and the, the control tower to know exactly where there's wind shear present, and then they can uh, they can avoid that at all costs. So. Yeah, that wind sock by the end of the runway won't tell you that, will it? No, that just gives you general direction. So, yeah. And briefly, the FLC, the Federal Laboratory Consortium, is a busy group. You've got conferences and challenge contests, and there's a lot of activity that goes on throughout the year among consortium members, isn't there? Yes. So what I've been talking about mainly uh, through Lab Tech in Your Life is what we do in our promote committee. We um, do a lot of promotion of federal technologies, but the facilitate committee is really engaged directly with the public. Um, They put on a number of events that highlight different federal technologies. They're in essence, they're matchmaking events in a lot of ways, but it's really getting core groups of people, technologists and uh, and folks who are interested in adopting new innovative technologies together in a room um, and really start talking to each other. And that's really the goal of the facilitate side of FLC. And we have a separate technology on our website called FLC Business that is uh, really kind of a, a full marketplace for those federal technologies that are available for uh, commercialization. And you have an FLC website in general, which is pretty darn good because unlike so many federal websites, names, emails, phone numbers are actually on there for people that are interested can contact the members. That's my yeah. observation. Uh, what we really, yeah, exactly. What we want to do is is definitely put people in contact with the folks at the agencies who can really help them uh, get to the technologies that they want as quickly as possible. So, uh, the goal of the FLC is really to streamline that process of getting technologies from lab to market. Derek Parks is deputy director of the Technology Partnerships Office at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and he's chairman of the Promote Committee of the Federal Lab Consortium. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never 
an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And, that, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the deep South, 
I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me... Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. 
And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.